This is Saving the Game, a Christian podcast about tabletop role-playing games and collaborative storytelling. Recorded Thursday, April 16th of 2020, it's episode 176. In this episode, Jason Brick joins us to talk about freelancing, plus our dream jobs, a children's book recommendation from Jenny, not working for free, staying organized, and more. Welcome to Save Me the Game. I'm Grant. I'm Peter. I'm Jenny. And I'm Jason. We have a Jason with us. Jason, how are you, sir? Fantastic. How are y'all? Eh, doing pretty well. Yeah. Getting by. You've joined us because we are talking about freelancing tonight. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself, explain where you're coming from on this particular topic, just, you know, very briefly, and then, you know, we'll give you a little chance to plug something that you've been working on as well, something like that. My business card says I'm a gamer, freelance writer, traveler, martial artist, husband, and dad, but not necessarily in that order of importance. And I'm here today because, you know, we all know each other from Fear the Boot through the uh, gaming link, of course, and I've been working as a freelance writer and as a freelancer in the gaming community for quite some time now. You could have gone a little longer. It's okay. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> so what are you working on these days, Jason? Oh, lousy me. So many things. In the tabletop role-playing game community, I just finished up some work on the Conan line from Modiphius Games. I'm working on Paranoia, which has just got me giggling with glee. And I'm helping Marvelous. Out. Yeah. It's just Citizen is the best thing ever. I'm also doing some work with uh, Iron GM Games, their new Grimmer Space horror science fiction game that kickstarted about this time last year, and we're getting the last adventures in. And I want to talk about some details of that later on in terms of one of the most important things to freelance success that has been really underscored by my relationship with that company. As for us, things are, you know, kind of normal on uh, the home front here. Yeah, uh, I mean, about as normal as it is anywhere in the world. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I... I did find an interesting thing uh, during my work. Oh, so yeah? I've been doing uh, virtual story times uh, every Saturday uh, where I stream on my mm. library's Facebook page, <laughs> me reading several stories. In order to do this, I have to um, get permission beforehand uh, and follow the guidelines provided by the individual publishers of books. I think I found an orphan work. Oh, really? Which, yeah, because... This coming story time, the theme is clothes and, and the way that we look and, and sort of like dressing up and that kind of thing. And one of my favorite storybooks from my childhood is one called Socks for Supper. I don't know anybody else who ever had Socks for Supper read to them, but I I adore it. It's, it's really cute. It sort of follows the format of like an old folktale, but the author is dead. I cannot ask the author for permissions. The publisher is almost defunct, but not quite. The publisher in this case is um, Parents Magazine, but it was Parents Magazine Press. Parents Magazine still exists, but they won't talk to me because I don't have a subscription to their magazine. And therefore, I'm not cool enough to get into their little customer service help club. So I can't find out who holds the rights to this work. Therefore, I cannot read it on stream. Canada does have some laws about how to gain permissions for an orphan work, 
but only a few hundred have ever actually passed the application procedure because you have to like prove that you tried to contact literally everybody involved with the work and and so yeah an orphan work is basically a work that is in uh copyright limbo it's awful if you can get your hands on a secondhand copy of socks for supper i highly recommend it it's very sweet and and all about generosity and and uh and that kind of thing. Very nice. Yeah, I'm looking at the uh, the Goodreads page for it now, and it is super cute. Mm-hmm. It is. Pretty much everything Jack Kent has ever done is, like, really sweet. We've got two of his books. We've got Socks for Supper and, uh, uh, what's it called? There's No Such Thing as a Dragon? Oh, I know why I recognize the art. We have Clotilda. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Very cute. It's, it's quite fun. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I think I might have found an orphan work. I, I would I would know for certain if Parents Magazine would talk to me. Hey, Parents Magazine, if you're listening. If, if you're, you're not, listening. Talk to me. If you're listening to our <laughs> tiny, obscure Christian RPG podcast. Call Jenny. Yeah. You're being very rude. Um, yeah. <laughs> one, one other quick last bit of business that I want to... Uh, not even so much a bit of business, just kind of a, a public thank you. Our Discord hit a level of uh, numbers where we realized that it was just a little more than the three of us could handle and do our day jobs and the other stuff that we do. So we have uh, recruited a mod team for the first time in the Discord's history, and it's very telling that one of us like floated three names and the other two are like, yep, those guys, yeah, th- those are the ones. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> Thank you to our new moderators for being awesome. Um, you have already taken some work off of our shoulders. And as of this recording, we instated you yesterday. So or the day before, maybe I don't know, was it Monday or was it Tuesday or Wednesday? Ah, that week? One of those days. Uh, days don't matter anymore. Yeah, days, days are, <laughs> listen, weekdays are a social construct. <laughs> they, they really they are. They really are. I am feeling that now more than ever because my daughter's on spring break this week and there is no structure. Everything is <laughs> everything is chaos. Yeah, but yes, uh, we have three new mods and they are excellent. It's not because we have like this massive influx of trolls or anything. It's just, you know, all the little housekeeping tasks. Yeah, like the Habitica group and the play-by-post game and just stuff where it's nice to have an extra pair of eyeballs and hands on things. Just... So if somebody wants to be added to something and we're working and one of them isn't, they don't have to wait for two and a half hours. Oh, yeah, I, I got to check my phone after doing bedtimes or whatever. Stuff like that. We're excited. And if you aren't a member of our Discord community, go go join. We've had several new signups over the past week. And uh, yeah, they're all awesome people. Outstanding. We should do a Patreon question. And Jason, you are absolutely welcome to join us on this. Welcome and encouraged. <laughs> Indeed. So what we're going to do is I'm going to use this handy die I've got right here. I'm going to roll it. Do you have the Do you have the one that's rolling max damage every time still? I do, because it's the only DA I can easily lay my hands on at the moment. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it's not max. Uh... <laughs> you rolled a seven, didn't you? I will neither confirm nor deny. <laughs> That's a long <laughs> pause to give that answer. Uh, yeah. All right. So this is from Patreon backer Joseph Lenarden, who asks, what would be your dream job? I already have my dream job. Like that, that's not really a joke. I, I genuinely love my job when I can do my job. <laughs> <laughs> Second on that, I've been a freelance writer for 10 years and I absolutely love it. <sighs> Astrophysicist. 
Ooh. I think probably some kind of professional RPG analysis as opposed to doing it as an amateur now. But I don't think our hobby has grown even now to the point where that's something I could really make a good living at. But we're going to talk about that here shortly. So, Joseph, well done. That might be the quickest we've ever gone through a Patreon question. Yeah, I don't think we have ever gotten through one that fast before. (laughs) Good work, Joseph. Thank you. Yeah. Oh, wait. If if we want to drag it out a little longer. And I don't see why we wouldn't. (laughs) I would love my job more if I could have someone else organize the programming for me it's it's my weakest point i don't like doing it and i like cataloging and acquisitions the most out of my job so if i could sort of like shift that balance away from programming to those things i would be doing worse at my job but i'd be happier <laughs> you need minions uh what i need is a i need a a, a children's <laughs> programmer and that's what i need there you go that's fair <laughs> Yeah, are we sure we want to give Jenny minions? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, 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 I think we do, yeah. My volunteers are already sort of my minions. Like, I I do work with volunteers, it's just that they don't do children's programming, that's my job, so... (laughs) About, uh, what, about 15 years ago now, I ran a martial arts studio for a while, had a staff of six employees and 18 volunteers, so I not only had minions, I had kung fu minions. (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little jealous. (laughs) I've only ever been a Kung Fu minion. <laughs> technically, technically an Aikido minion, but still. Oh, nice. I was never good enough at any of the martial arts that I tried to even be a minion, so. <laughs> Joseph, thank you for the question. We really do appreciate it. If you want to get your own questions on the list, just send them in to us via Patreon message. And if you aren't on our Patreon yet, for only a dollar a month, you get to send us questions that make us come up with ridiculous answers, and it's wonderful. Absolutely do that. Patreon.com slash saving the game. It also gets you um, access to some kind of behind the scenes blog posts, uh, um, access to our show outlines when the show is released, that sort of thing. Yeah, so all sorts of fun stuff. All righty. We've got some scripture to read. This is Proverbs 14.23. All hard work brings a profit, but mere talk leads only to poverty. Matthew 5.9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. And also from Matthew, we have chapter 20, verses 1 to 7. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. He went out again about noon and about three in the afternoon and did the same thing. About five in the afternoon he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, You also go and work in my vineyard. And James chapter 4, verses 3 through 16. Now listen, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. We are talking tonight about freelancing in the RPG industry. And this is a topic that I think every gamer eventually gets curious about because they all think, I can write some of this stuff. Surely I can write better than this book. Oh, wait, I have an idea for this. How can I get paid for that? And I think everybody 
dreams of sending something in and getting it accepted and eventually, you know, writing about stuff, at least a little bit on the side, getting their name down. But I guarantee it's a lot harder than I think, and I don't know anything about <laughs> it. Which is why we have Jason on to talk about it. Jason, how did you get started freelancing? Freelance writing and freelance RPG are two slightly different stories. Okay. As a freelance writer, what happened was while I was running that karate studio, for example, I had a column in my local paper about safety, about fitness, things like that. I wrote my own ad copy. I did copy for my website, had a few articles in some industry magazines like Black Belt, things like that. And then I loved running a karate school, but that's an evening and weekends job. And when my old kid got school-aged and I didn't see him for six months, something had to give. And so I turned that portfolio I had made of advertising copy and articles and things into a freelance writing career over the course of about a year. It, it worked out. And, you know, I, like I said earlier, I love my job. Uh, it's you know, total independence of time and location. I work hard, but I work when I went to. So that when I asked my youngest son's principal why there wasn't a chess team, and he looked me in the eye and told me, because we don't have a parent to run the chess team, I could just go do that in two of the afternoon on a random Tuesday for the foreseeable future. Because I, I wasn't at the office when school let out. You know, I see my kid every day. I never miss a soccer game. So that worked out. Tabletop RPG, the first assignments I got with that was with Steve Jackson Games writing for the magazine Pyramid, which is now defunct. And I got that the way you get most writing gigs, where you send them an email and say, hey, please, please let me write this. Now, it's been my experience since then that in the RPG industry, that is a really, really hard way to get a gig. It's much better to know somebody who knows somebody and get an introduction. So in that case, what happened was I was at Fear the Con talking to Steve, who had interviewed Chris Birch from Odiphius on his podcast back when, pod, uh, what was it? Postcards from the Dungeon was a thing. Ooh, that takes me back. Yeah, right? <laughs> And I talked to Steve, and Steve talked to Chris, and Chris took me on, and I did a good job, and he took me on for more and more and more, and they recommended me to other people in the industry. And now I make about a third of my income from the RPG industry because of the that cascading series of recommendations. It does sound like that's something that's pretty common in this industry in particular. I know in a lot of cases for, you know, many writing gigs, it's kind of pitch-based, but the RPG industry, it being smaller, more closely knit, people kind of going from, you know, publishing house to publishing house pretty often. I imagine it is a lot of, oh, yeah, this person seems pretty good. I'd recommend you talk to them. Yeah. And there's a one of the reasons for that, besides the fact that it's just kind of a small community, is what you were talking about just a moment ago, about how everybody thinks they can do it. So there's a lot of people applying for work and a lot of people who aren't professional and a lot of people who really can't write. And so you get the situation... I mentioned earlier about working on the Grimmer Space books, where I was originally contracted to do about 8,000 words worth of work. And then a couple months ago, they came to me about another 20,000 words of work, maybe up to 30, that got turned in really poor quality or didn't get turned in at all. The freelancer just ghosted them. So now they're up a creek, <laughs> but they called me and say, hey, Jason, can you save the day? And of course, I, you know, I like these guys and I take my career seriously, so I, I'm saving the day. But that is so common in among freelance writers in general and in the tabletop RPG hobby specifically that a personal recommendation from someone who will tell you, yeah, this guy does what he says he's going to do, 
and he turns in good work is really valuable, almost necessary because of the number of amateurs or, and I don't mean amateurs just in terms of somebody who hasn't done it for pay yet, but someone who doesn't treat it seriously. The number of people in the industry who are like that, there's a lot of gun-shy editors and hiring managers out there because of that. Well, of course. I mean, they have deadlines to hit and you know products to produce. Yes, exactly. Yeah, it was interesting. I remember when I got the, the first paid writing that I did was for the Sojourn Anthology, kind of back when we were first starting this podcast. And I remember talking with the editor for that, and she said that like the editors have kind of gotten cynical where it's like, turns in work on time, does good quality work and easy to work with are it's are kind of the good fast cheap pick two yeah <laughs> of writers <laughs> if you can try and make yourself all three of those that will probably go a long way i would imagine uh, certainly i think will make you stand out not to toot my own horn at all but uh that's my superpower that i came from an industry and a culture that was about being polite doing what you say you're going to do being flexible and doing your best in all situations. And I found that walking into freelance writing, which does not have that as its baseline culture, um, I did. I have a lot of repeat customers. I haven't had to go looking for work for years because of exactly as you say. If you can be all three instead of just two or often just one or zero, you will stand out. And if you're looking to break into the industry, that's the biggest thing that I could recommend. Just do what you say you're going to do, do it well. And be nice while you're doing it. So given that baseline of be a professional, how do you get started generally? Obviously, everyone has a specific path that they take into a particular industry. I've got my own into the job I work in now, things like that. Mine's real weird. Everyone's is probably weird. But what's like the, the general well-trodden path? I'm not sure one would say well-trodden because you ask 100 freelance writers how you got they got there, you'll get 100 different answers. The recommendation I've given when I speak at conferences or give master classes on breaking into freelance writing has been to look to the things you're already a part of. If you like knitting and you go into your knitting store, you look to the left of the register, there's a rack with four magazines about knitting. Those magazines are written by people who know about knitting but can't really write. If you can do both, then you become their editor's best friend and you get repeat assignments from that. Ditto the knitting websites you go to. And that applies to every hobby. RPG is a little different just because it is saturated with people who think they can write, just because of the nature of the hobby. We're all smart people who put words together. But most other hobbies, that is the easy break-in point. Just go to those hobby magazines, those hobby websites, and start pitching. And you can do the same thing with your existing career. If you're at work, there's trade journals you read, trade journals your boss reads, trade journals that are lying around in the break room in the kitchen. There's websites and reports that come across your email. All of those are places that need writing. And because in your industry, you have the knowledge already that you need to contribute. And because you're also a good writer, you're a step higher than the people who are usually contributing. So that's where I recommend people start with the publications, the journals that they're already interacting with in some way. And that's where you get your first professional credits, your first tear sheets, and you start to build up from there. Okay. Probably the next question to to kind of move into here is what kind of stuff does the rpg industry actually hire freelancers for because i i think a lot of people are like oh great i'm just going to go pitch my campaign setting that i've been using at home to one of these companies yeah that's not a thing uh, that's 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 for self-publishing uh, yeah. what they will have <laughs> is they will have ideas that they need someone to write and then they will give you some of those ideas once you get there for a long time, you can start pitching ideas where instead of they come to you and say, I need an adventure about raiding a temple on an island, they might come to you and say, 
I need an adventure. What do you got? But you're not going to bring your campaign to a major publisher and have them say, oh my lord, this is brilliant. This is genius. We're going to publish all of it right away. It bears noting that I think the only home game I have ever seen that done with just came out in the last couple of months, and that's the the critical role setting that Wizards published. If you want to get real technical, we look back at the Forgotten Realms and Greyhawk, right? But they kind of owned the place. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Vin Diesel had to make movies to get his made. Exactly, yeah. exactly. You know, now you can certainly self-publish that or kickstart that, and there's that's becoming more and more common, and even success with that's become more and more common. But that's a different animal. Yeah, that's not freelancing. That's self-publishing. <laughs> exactly. One other thing I think that is kind of a common misconception I've run into with a little bit of paid RPG writing that I've done, and I'm sure you've run into, is a lot of people think that the industry pays way better than it does. Oh, lordy. <laughs> I make um, three cents a word for EN Cider, and from what I understand, that's fairly average. It's that glut of available talent, where there's so many people raising their hands who are just excited to be there, that you're not going to get a professional rate. I would love to do just online, or not online, but tabletop role-playing games. I would love to do that as all I do for a living, but it's just not tenable. To give you an idea, three cents to six cents a word is pretty much where you can expect to get paid unless you're a celebrity in the tabletop role-playing game industry. I also make money doing corporate blogging, and that pays 25 cents a word. I do the corporate blogging so I can afford <laughs> to do the tabletop role-playing game stuff, just because there is there is a lot of competition, and the industry doesn't make piles and piles of money. Yeah, it's it's still a relatively small industry. I mean, we... You know, a lot of the time us as gamers will look at like the high production values that come out of some of these companies. But like Monty Cook Games is like 15 people. The the D&D &D department at Wizards of the Coast is way smaller than you think. Paizo is not even, you know, that big. It's like just because you've got something that is really attractive looking when it comes out doesn't necessarily mean there's an army of people working on it. It just means that they bought good paper and hired good talent. I think there's also a sort of an, an illusion that has recently, especially recently, come with the higher visibility of the gaming community, because all of a sudden, with the, not not to sound like I'm about 20 years older than I am, but with, with this new social media stuff, <laughs> we suddenly realize that we have all these people around the world who are into this thing, therefore... Because so many people are into it, it must be this massive industry when it isn't. It's really quite small. And Peter touched on another factor, which is that they are beautiful books and they're full of art. And art is really expensive. So even though you're selling millions of copies, perhaps, for Dungeons & Dragons, the margin on any individual book is very low. You're, it's more similar to a textbook than to a regular book in terms of how much it costs to make that. The margins in like publishing in general are not exactly huge it's they're not quite as razor thin as say like the grocery business but we're not talking like you know 80 percent margins on your your selling price like you know companies like intel enjoy on their chips it's it's pretty modest right i mean it's very tight a company will sell a 50 dollar rpg book and they'll probably at the best make 10 or 15 bucks on it. Yeah. And that's like Watsy. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so let's get into a little bit more specific mm -hmm. stuff here. I, I guess, actually, no, there's there's one thing that we should cover. It's, 
I know what your answer to this is, but Jason, should you ever do this for free if you're looking to be a professional? Never work for free. Never, never, never work for free. Never, 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 never work for free. Did I mention that you should never work for free? Once or twice. (laughs) Okay, good. What I will say is that in some cases, if because the pay rate is so low, if what you really want is have your name and the credits on a book and see your work out there in the industry and you work with a really beginning publisher and they're going to give you just copies or something like that, maybe do that once or twice. But most of the time, expect to get paid. You're the talent. And if you're good enough to get hired, you're good enough to get paid. Yeah. I would also say that working for a company that can afford to pay you is much more reliable than somebody who asks you to see if you can, you know, Maybe just work for exposure. Yes. Because, you know, we all hear about artists flaking and disappearing or writers flaking and disappearing. Publishers, first-time publishers, people just trying to kickstart something for the first time with no experience, they also flake and disappear. Yes. It's probably a little harsh to say this, but the newer the company, the higher the risk, right? I mean, at least in most cases. Absolutely. And like any other job, I really recommend, even though, especially a beginning freelancer, there's this temptation to just take whatever comes across your transom because, hey, you got to start somewhere. But it's completely legitimate to ask them for references and to interview them and background check them. They're going to do that to you if they're smart. You're as, at least as smart as they are. So ask around. Check out the yeah. social media. See who, what people have to say about them. See how their last two Kickstarters fared. I'd say even do that with like the bigger, better-known companies. It's all well and good to, you know have this old established publisher, but if you only know their older stuff and you don't know what they've done recently, look into that too. Absolutely. Yeah, it's probably not a bad piece of advice. I mean, companies experience turnover in every industry, so the guy who was really good back when you were reading the stuff might not be there anymore. Almost certainly won't, actually. The, the turnover is ridiculous. Unless their name's on the brand. I'm reasonably sure Steve Jackson is still with Steve Jackson Games. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Reasonably sure. <laughs> yeah, they're kind of confusing to work with because three guys in upper management are all named Steven. Oh, jeez. <laughs> hey, Steve. Three head fa- turn and face you. <laughs> uh, no, that's Steve. Okay. <laughs> I mean, the head of my company and the head of engineering are both named David or Dave, and it's just that's always confusing. We have three guys named Rick at the little company of 15 people that I work for. That's not confusing at all. I just want to get back to what Grant had to say, though. How many times a day do you get a chance to look him in the eye and say, I'm afraid I can't do that right now, Dave? (laughs) Well, as both of them pay my bills, um, not very often. I know. It's it's the worst. Yeah. And one other thing, just to, to back up slightly, I want to talk about working for exposure for a minute because this is a very exploitable thing. It's a very common problem in all creative fields. Photography, art, writing, crafts, even like you name it. It's very common for people to say, oh, don't worry, you're going to work and get exposure. You'll have something on your resume. That's why you should do this for me for free. If somebody is making a profit off of you, you need to try and get something. And I don't mean, you know, you get your share, but I mean, if you are working, work for money because that that mandates a certain level of respect. It also means that you are working and able to actually, you know, feed yourself while you're doing this. And that's important. I will also say that undervaluing the work of creatives happens in every, like, creative field, too. I remember a couple of falls back, my wife makes handmade fabric purses, and we're, 
out working a craft show and a customer came up to her and grabbed the most expensive item in her booth and tried to haggle the price down over 20%. And my wife was like, no, that took me a long time to make. I, I understand that you really want that, but the price is fair. And the customer kind of got mad and left, but it's like, I'm not going to devalue all the effort that I put into this thing just because you want it. I agree. You are worth yeah. being paid for what you do. And from a purely selfish standpoint, I am worth being paid well for what I do. And every time you take a job for free, that convinces somebody to maybe offer me less money. So you're not just hurting yourself, you're hurting me. And did I mention I'm a black belt? <laughs> <laughs> that aside, there are, there are two situations where I do recommend not taking money for a job. When you're starting out, another really good source of those first assignments is local businesses you already work with, a restaurant where you know the owner, for example. Maybe your kid's skate shop, right? And you offer to them to maybe retool their website in exchange for like a gift certificate or something like that, some kind of barter. And that's fine. Don't do it too much. Yeah, some sort of compensation, whatever it is. Exactly. And then the other time where you can potentially work for exposure is in a situation where you are writing about yourself. Never write about somebody else for free. But if you get a chance to do an article, especially in the beginning of your career, that sets you up as an expert or a resource that will get published widely. Like, for example, for your local chamber of commerce, a free article you do for them on the value of good copywriting for your business. Something that is about you and only you very specifically fine-tuned. And the way I think about that is you're not really writing for free. What you're doing is not paying for advertising. I've got one third one that I'd be interested in your opinion on. What if you're just doing something for charity? Because that'll still stay out there after you're done with it. I remember I turned in a little bit of free writing around Hurricane Katrina for some charity bundles. Absolutely. And yeah, charity is important. And the way we give to charity, whether it's with our time or whether it's with our money, that's absolutely something that we should do more of. And the fact that it kind of gets back to you in the fullness of time, as it were, where people who read that think, hey, who's this guy? That's helpful to you, but it doesn't take away from the main purpose, which is giving your time and your talent to a cause that you feel is important. Yeah, that's a good catch. Mm -hmm. To drive this point home, though, just look at the, the four exposure Twitter account <laughs> for a little while and just come away depressed and then realize <laughs> this is incredibly common. And you absolutely yes. need to charge. Yeah. We've hit that a lot, but it's super important. I wanted to stress it. And Jason, if somebody is wanting to start out, and let's let's say they're starting in the, the role-playing game industry specifically. Obviously, there's a bunch of resources out there for freelance writing and lots of other creation, but let's just talk about the role-playing industry for a moment. What specific creative advice do you have for those people who are new creators? We've kind of talked about being professional. But is there some additional advice you can give on how to kind of generate that, that, that good habit of being a professional? Hmm, that's a fairly wide question, but I'll take a shot at it. The thing about habits are their skills, right? Meaning that they are things that you can get better at with time and attention. And so the best way is to take the old Benjamin Franklin approach where you identify maybe you're a terrible communicator. I am a terrible communicator. And you set some kind of metric about, I'm going to set an alarm on my email and I'm going to return every communication within 48 hours. And then you just track with a little check mark or sticker in your calendar the days that you're successful on that. Or maybe you want to get better at doing a half an hour of work every evening, even when you're tired, even when you don't want to. 
And again, you just make that promise to yourself and then see how well you keep that promise. One of the things that really changed my life was to start thinking about my goals for my freelance writing, and whether that's in the role-playing game industry or elsewhere, as promises I make to myself. If you make a promise to your partner, if you make a promise to your kid, what's going to keep you from keeping that promise? What's going to stop you? And the answer is wild horses, men with swords, right? You will do whatever you can to keep that promise. <laughs> but we make these promises to ourselves, and we let those slide. We should value our word to ourselves just as much as we value our word to the other people we love. And we should love ourselves enough to keep those promises. So when it comes to building habits, when it comes to creating the person that you need to be to have the life you want, make a promise to yourself and then keep promise like you'd made it to your child. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. It's good advice just in general. Yeah, I kind of got off of specific to tabletop role playing. But you know, when you're talking about the question of how do you build those habits, that's how you build those habits. Can I also just jump in here with like, you mentioned stickers earlier. There is a lovely little psychology thing that I learned in first year general psychology, where our, our little lizard brains like to line things up. If you break the, the streak that you're running of keeping a habit, your little lizard brain is going to make you unhappy. And if you specifically outline that visually with like stickers or with an app that like gives you points for doing a really cool thing or doing something consistently, your brain will be happier the longer that streak goes on visually. As soon as you break that streak, it will make you just have a little bit of, of sad, sad lizard brain going on. That's a thing that a lot of people find helpful if you find visual cues to keep work habits a helpful thing, absolutely do that. It's not silly to put little gold star stickers on your calendar or whatever for every really good habit you kept up. Absolutely. Now, in terms of uh, new habits, I think the biggest habit that a lot of people in the industry don't have that will really help them break in is just get more involved in the overall community. Spend time in that friendly local gaming store. Get on the internet chat rooms. Get on the Facebook groups. Get on the Twitter feeds. And go to your conferences and conventions because that's where you're going to talk to the person who's mentioning a project they're starting up. Or that's where you're going to be sitting at a table with a uh, hiring manager or a managing editor at a publisher. If we just sit at home with our own gaming group and just every once in a while go online and see if there's anything, we will find that there's very, very little. You know, get in the places where the decision makers are and spend time with them. Now make that a habit and you have to if you have to also put that on your calendar checklist and give yourself a sticker for every time you get social with somebody, go ahead and do that because that's an indispensable part of breaking into this industry as a freelancer. Yeah, I suppose it sounds obvious to say it, but you're not being hired by a computer. You're being hired by another person. So if you don't know any of them, it's real hard to find work. Yeah. And this particular industry, because it is so heartbreaking without some kind of recommendation, it really is important to get that FaceTime, to get on to podcasts even and talk to people. Go to Fear the Con or go to Emerald City Con or go to Gen Con. Although Gen Con is big enough and frantic enough, it's probably not as good as some of the smaller ones for making us professional connections. There's just so many people and yet nobody remembers anything that happened three days after. Yeah, Gen Con isn't drinking from the fire hose. Gen Con is drinking from the water main. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's, uh, it's crazy. Wonderful, but crazy. There was another thing. Another thing that you can do 
and I'm going to make fun of myself here a little bit, is if you're a freelancer and you also have some self-published projects, like this wonderful series of mine called Random Encounters that I do with Jeb Brock, who's another booter, and you have eight volumes of those available on Amazon and you're proud of them and they're really good short books of advice and inspiration for tabletop role players, and you got yourself on a podcast to publicize that, don't forget to talk about it for 41 minutes and 52 seconds during the podcast. I was kind of wondering when you were going to bring that up. Yeah. Since, since Jason just remembered this now, um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to help him out a little bit because I, I have the first collection that they did of this. Jeb actually sent me a review copy bef uh, before the last Fear of the Con that I made it to a little while ago. And I tore through that thing and then got the physical copy and had Jason and Jeb both autograph it. And it sits on my shelf right above my desk where I do my prep work for my Sunday gaming session. So it is he's he's plugging it because he's on here, but it's definitely worth checking out. Actually, so. that's not even that far off topic because the story of how those books started was I was I spent a year in Malaysia with my kids because freelance writing is great. Half my clients didn't notice and the other half didn't mind. But while I was there, I didn't have a gaming group. I was jonesing. So I got on Google Plus and just started asking questions or putting out a scenario idea and having a conversation about it. And then I'd do a 500-word write-up of it based on the conversation. And I started collecting 20 of those in a little 99-cent ebook and putting them on Amazon. And that was how those books got started. And they were quite successful. There was a point where five of them, the first five, were all in the top 10 in Amazon's category for GURP supplements, of all things. Nice. Huh. Right? And it can, that success came from working within that community and building those connections and having these great conversations with these people who bought the first book because we were friends on the internet and enjoyed each other's company. And then because I did turn in a quality work, they got the next one and the next one and the next one. And so that's an example of why it's important to not just kind of work in a vacuum, but to get yourself out there and make those connections. Because even with these small, silly little self-published projects, it makes a huge difference. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm anxiously waiting for volume two at this point out of the, the printed ones. See, what we do is the first five was season one, and we made it into that print omnibus. And volumes one, two, and three of season two are out. Four is right now waiting for the editor. And then five, five will come out in, in May. And then we'll put them all together in a second omnibus. I send one to you, absolutely. Excellent. Very cool. So let's get some other advice for people who want to, to break in freelancing here. What resources do people need to have on hand when they start off? Or, or what do we, and not just start off, what do they want to build up over time? So in terms of resources, you'll want to have be very familiar with Dropbox because that's where everybody sends you the files. You'll want to be able to use Word and be able to use it well. You want to have a reasonable facility with Zoom and with Skype. And most people have all of those things, but you want to have more than just a passable familiarity because you'll be using them a lot. And just the simplicity of having memorized how to do that one thing that saves you an hour over the course of a month, those things add up. So be good with the basic tools of the trade. Beyond that, Follow the people that you want to work with on Twitter and Facebook and to a lesser extent in Instagram. Don't stalk them, but paying attention. See when they mention that they're excited about a project coming up. Make intelligent, meaningful comments on their conversations so they start to recognize your name. Things like that. 
And if you have those resources in hand and rolling, that'll put you a long way towards success. Interesting. Okay. Um, I guess how much of like a, a library of books or reference material, that sort of thing, do you need at this point? I mean, the internet is right there. Is that a thing anymore? In terms of like, you certainly don't need your uh, Strunk and White or your Rogers or anything like that in hard copy at your desk. Books like that mm -hmm. are what I refer to as, hey, look, somebody printed a portion of the internet and put it in my house. <laughs> right? You don't need those things. But you, you're you going to want to be familiar with the game that you're offering to work for, obviously. Uh, I was at a conference, I won't say where, with some industry professionals, I won't say who, and they were playing a drinking game around how many paid assignments they'd gotten for games they'd never played or even bothered to read. That tells Ooh. you about what can happen if you do show common courtesy and proper respect and do the thing. Because I'll tell you right now, I've gotten gigs in favor of everybody at that table. Right. And just because hmm. their work hmm. wasn't as good as it could have been. But know how to play the game or at least pick it up. One of the nice things is you end up getting a whole lot of PDFs of games that you didn't pay for because they send you all those for free. And I have a habit that anytime I get a gig in a game, I go sure. treat myself to another book in that with that game just because, hey, why not? I like having the library. But you want to you wanna be familiar with the work or at least enough that you can play it with somebody without having to have someone hold your hand. You know, you don't have to memorize the rules except for Paizo. Those guys are really serious. Uh, but with most of the other games, they'll they'll walk you through the the math of it. Another question that comes to mind: You'd mentioned some style guide stuff. Do publishers provide style guides by and large? The big ones do. The professional ones absolutely do. As okay. you get smaller and smaller, you start ending up into that that third tier of folks who are just starting out, who is a labor of love, who is a Kickstarter project where half of them aren't really sure what a style guide is. And again, I don't say this in an arrogant way or a way to make fun of them. They just haven't been exposed to that information yet. And if you work for them as a professional, you often end up developing their style guide for them accidentally. Hmm. Which is probably a really good way to ingratiate yourself with them and build your reputation, I would imagine. Absolutely. So I guess here's another question. Is that something you should be afraid of, be stepping in with those smaller companies and offering more, taking on that more of that work in in that way? Afraid of is not quite right because sometimes it can be a lot of fun, but alert for is smart. You know, you go in knowing that's a possibility. If you think it might happen, make a decision and a deal with yourself about how much are you willing to do? How much are you willing to do it for free? And right. be upfront. Whenever you're asked to do extra work, sometimes, you know, just added value is fine. You throw in a few extra words or an extra project, an hour of your time because you like the project, you like the people. But at some point, you can't be working for free because, you know, you like eating food and sleeping indoors and want to continue to do so. Yeah, <laughs> And so be sure that you have the conversation with yourself early and then you have a conversation with the publisher early if it looks like it's going that direction. But kind of building off of that, are there any like real warning signs that if you see this, it's like time to get out? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Other than the offer to work for exposure, obviously. But yeah, that's that's not even time to get out. That's time to get in with a good left hook, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so unfortunately, newness is a big red flag. If they're funding it on Kickstarter and it's the first one they've ever done. That's a flag. I'm not saying not to do work for them. Some of my favorite projects have been exactly that. But it's where you see that situation, you definitely want to look into their history. Have they been successful before? You can also just ask folks about them. Again, being part of the community. 
if there's a publisher and you're about to start work with them and they're excited, but you're feeling a little sketched out about it for one of a dozen reasons, go ahead and ask some other people who've worked with them or ask them to name people they've worked with. A trick I learned from a security consultant I know is really good for this kind of thing. He uses it in telling you how to interview and background check potential employees, potential nannies, things like that, where you ask a publisher for somebody that someone who has worked with them. And then you ask that person for the name of somebody else who worked with them. Because a publisher is going to recommend the guy who likes them. But the person that that person recommends might have a different experience. It's worth hearing that experience as well, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. yeah. Get yourself a couple degrees of separation away from the person and then see how they look, huh? Exactly. So the other thing to keep in mind is that people and publishers who are going out to abuse you exist, but they're rare. What's far, far more common is people who are enthusiastic and unskilled who bite off more than they can chew and end up either not being able to pay you or end up with a timeline that's grossly extended because they got in over their heads. And this project that you are counting on to pay you in June so you could make your mortgage is still rolling in August and you haven't gotten paid yet. And some places to look for there are how do they communicate with you at the beginning? If it takes them three days to get to you at the beginning of the project, it's going to take them two weeks when you're all in the thick of it. Uh, pay attention to the tone of communication. How quickly do they get testy with you if you're asking basic questions? Take a look at how much they want to control your turn-in time, your turn-in timeline, benchmarks, things like that. How many Zoom conferences do they want to have with you? Things like that. Things that show you that even though this person may mean well, they might not have what it takes to deliver on what they want. Micromanaging is a real problem in the industry, isn't it? I mean, I, I know there's certain companies that are kind of notorious for it, but it, it's, I get the impression it's kind of prevalent in the industry in general more than you would think. I have heard that complaint. I have not personally experienced it, but I work with a lot of really good editors at this point, and I probably just lucked out. I mean, they're going to want the documents turned in just so. But I haven't, I haven't personally had that experience. No, although I've heard some bad things about the in-house staff at a couple of the major publishers that if you're in the building, it's just hell. Hmm. Okay. So related to making sure that you get, you know, your mortgage paid on time, how often do you find yourself juggling multiple projects and how do you handle that? I juggle multiple projects almost every week. Because I've got – I don't have a job. I have multiple jobs. Right. And the way I tend to do it is because I've been doing this for a long time, I kind of know what kind of work my brain is capable of taking on at a certain time. So I schedule a couple hours in the morning and a couple hours in the afternoon when I know I'm going to be sharp to do the heavy lifting as it were. So whether that's a project that takes a lot of attention or it's maybe a topic that I'm not as familiar with, so I have to do heavier research, or whether I'm, right, I'm crunching the numbers for a Pathfinder monster, you know, those will happen in those times. And then the other times, like early in the morning when I'm warming up or that 11 o'clock to 1 o'clock lull that we all kind of get, that's the time that I might be outlining a project or doing some light editing or something like that. Or working on a, a fun assignment like the flavors for a paranoia adventure. And so knowing yourself and when you work well and when you work not as well and scheduling your day accordingly is the best way to manage to juggle multiple projects. And of course, write everything down. I spent a lot of my 20s being punched in the head. And if I don't write it down, it didn't happen. And I'm in a bit of an extreme case, but most people 
remember less than the things they're going to remember. So keep a spreadsheet, keep a notebook, write it all down so you can keep track. So true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Phone reminders are great. <laughs> From working in tech support, I can absolutely attest to that. There's a reason I make a log of everything that I do with a customer. It's not just for accountability on my end. It's accountability to the customer and also to remind the customer what we just talked about so that they have something to refer back to when they're go saying, all right, what, what did he say to do? It happens all the time. They need that. Yeah, or the same problem pops up again because somebody made the same mistake on a new machine on their end. And they're like, we, we had this last month. Let's just yes. flip through. Oh, oh, you just do this. Okay, it's in this menu. Yeah. Yes. And then they, you don't get a call in the first place. And that's good. Yes. At that point, your tickets are self-documenting. Yeah. So it's very valuable. You mentioned something in passing. You were talking about working on flavor text for one project and a stat block for another project. What is the breakdown? And I know this is going to vary wildly from publisher to publisher, but like, what's the breakdown of crunch versus fluff, to use very broad strokes here? How much are people looking for purely creative content and how much are people looking for, you know, the crunchy math that goes into the mechanics of a game. For a beginning freelancer, it's almost going to be entirely fluff. And also as a beginner with a certain game. Because you're a new person, they don't know how well you know the game, they don't know how well you know the rules. So they're not going to trust you with something they could break an adventure. They'll give you some flavor, some describe this one barony over here, or describe this city over here. And then they'll have somebody, often if there's an in-house person working, it's the rules master. And they'll go in and put in the rules. After a while, you'll get some other assignments where they might give you the opportunity to build a monster or something like that. But for most companies, it's going to be after you establish trust that you know the game, take it seriously, and aren't going to just throw some random numbers out and call it good and then have a bunch of people come in and write a bad review of the adventure because that fight was too easy or too hard. I would not have expected that. I would have thought really? it would cut the other way. Really? Yeah. Okay. And it, it, the explanation <laughs> makes perfect sense, but in my head it was like, I mean, what, you know, the difference between writing something big and impressive and, you know, like the, the meat of the setting or real important creative stuff versus just some numbers. You and I down in my head. have a very different idea of what is big and impressive because to me, I can describe a castle full, and I guess this, I think this is also maybe a, a, a good way to highlight our differences in GMing. I'm an improv GM, so I make up words on the fly. Monsters die whenever it is convenient to the plot and whenever I can feel that the players are, you know, getting annoyed. To me, the mechanics are what make and break a game. But whether or not the carpet in the king's castle is blue, that's not really going to make or break a game. Sure, sure. Although to your point, if you use the old old Greyhawk, for example, as an analogy, mm. if you're fresh out the gate of the company, they're not going to ask you to describe Greyhawk. They're going to give you some minor kingdom in the southwest. Mm -hmm. Yeah, or some village that's on a logging route or something. Exactly. So yeah, there's not much crunch at first because they're going to want to hold tighter control on the math of the game. And that makes perfect sense as you describe it, like I said, but it's just it, somehow in my brain – not what I expected. Anything in particular that you want to make sure you throw out here, Jason? Specific advice that we haven't covered yet that you think would be valuable or? 
What question have you always wanted to be asked? Oh, yeah. my Lord. That is always how I end interviews that I do for the journal- journalism side of my career. Always. And I get about 50-50 absolute panic and <laughs> just because they have no idea how to answer that. Or you get them where their eyes light up and they just nerd out about something for 20 minutes. And it's so delightful to see. <laughs> the biggest question I think people should ask is, can I do it? Should I do it? And the answer is yes. Give it a try. Why not? Right? We started this with that question of what's your dream job? Don't you deserve to go do this if it's the thing you want to do? I mean, give it a try. Go go try it. Go do go go ask. Learn some games. Go to a convention. Meet some people. None of these are bad for you. Worst thing that'll happen is somebody will say no. Exactly. As was explained to me once upon a time about asking somebody for a date, the worst case scenario of going and asking is identical to the best case scenario of not asking. Hmm. Yeah. It's a good point. Go for it. Also, it's our philosophy for trying to get guests on the podcast is <laughs> what will happen. They, yeah. say, they say, no, I don't have time or no, I'm not interested. I've been rejected before. It's okay. <laughs> yeah. Jason, we really appreciate you taking the time to join us. It's been great talking with you. Yeah, mm-hmm. Thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. It's always good to visit with you, Peter. It's good to have you on and actually be able to talk with you, you know, over voice chat instead of just over Facebook chat for a change. So Yeah, exactly. If somebody wanted to find you, whether to find your material or, you know, see about getting you uh, to work on something for them or anything like that, where can they find you? You know, Facebook is where I am all the time. Look for Jason Brick. Uh, there's a couple of them on there, but it's pretty obvious which one of them is a gamer, freelance writer, a traveler and martial artist that I introduced myself as. You can also go to our uh, Random Encounters Facebook group which is a place where we talk about games, put inspiration down, and it's a growing community that we're pretty proud of. Very welcoming. There's not a lot of people pin on other people, and we slap them down when we find them. It's one of the few Facebook communities I'm still engaged with. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) Yeah, a lot of people are surprised because I do get relentlessly political and combative on my personal feed, but I don't truck with that in the role-playing game group. That's not what that's about. Fair. It's the same sort of thing for me. Like, I have my personal Twitter account and the Saving the Game Twitter account, and the two do not tweet about the same thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, I, although I would I would say that was kind of a, a negative slant on the way that you handle things on Facebook. You spend a lot of time trying to get people with radically different underlying assumptions to see eye to eye. <laughs> that is... Thank you. That is what I try hard to do. And it started from that martial arts background because I got on Facebook at first as part of the martial arts community. That is full of people who are very passionate and about half of them are very conservative people who learn martial arts in the military and they're military guys and they're police and they're very right wing. And then you've got the hippies who took Aikido. Hi. So you have very passionate people on opposite sides of the political spectrum who respect each other for reasons other than their political opinions. So you can actually have a reasonable conversation sometimes. My mistake was letting the writers get involved because those guys don't know how to act. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the thing is, though, that was one of the things that was really fascinating when the Fear of the Boot community started moving onto Twitter and onto um, Facebook is the Fear of the Boot forums had this very strict no politics, no religion rule. So we all became friends without really being able to talk about that stuff. And then when we got onto the social media and started talking about that stuff, we all liked and respected each other already. And a lot of bridges kind of got built. Yeah, that's the key. I think it's really important. Well, Jason, thank you again. Absolutely. We know, obviously, your time is uh, is valuable. You you 
spend it carefully, and we're glad that you uh, got to spend some of it with us. We, we appreciate yeah, that. It was good to have you. It was absolutely my pleasure. One thing I do want to add, obviously you can find us on the web, stgcast.org, and on social media, facebook.com slash saving the game, twitter.com slash saving the game. One other place that we are on is a site called Podchaser. I've mentioned them a few times, but I want to bring this up specifically here because they're doing a thing right now for COVID-19 relief, and it sounds small, but it is one of those things that adds up. They're donating 25 cents per podcast review on their site, and this is running, I think, through the end of April, and they've got a couple other companies matching donations to this. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but if you think about the sheer quantity of reviews that can go into a single podcast, you know, it adds up. They are also doubling that if the podcast replies to the review. So if you review us on Podchaser, you know, just take a minute, help us get some visibility there. It's a small donation that is made for you. The other thing about Podchaser, though, is that you get to review individual episodes, and those count too. So if you've got an episode or two that you really like, review those, and that'll go into the same donation scheme. So now's a good time to help, uh, you know, help us out, get uh, our reviews up on Podchaser, which is really a very well-respected site at this point. It's probably mm-hmm. second only to iTunes in terms of review visibility and finding podcasts. And I would also add to that, if you've got other podcasts that you like that are on there, you might as well get them too, because, hey, it's generating money for a very worthwhile cause. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We are in at least one group that one of our listeners has made on Podchaser that is a massive list of geek Christian podcasts. Go through there, A, find new podcasts, and B, review the ones you like. I actually need to find some time to do that myself in the next day or two, so... We appreciate everybody taking the time to listen to us. Jason, thank you again for your time, and from all of us here at Saving the Game, have a good one, take it easy. We'll catch you next time. See you later, folks. Take care. See ya. Bye, con Dios. This has been a production of Saving the Game. All episodes are produced and published under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, share-alike license, Our logo is by Ruben Smith Zimple of 3d6design.com. Our music is The Promised Place Beyond the Clouds by James Opie. You can find more of his music at nihilor.com. To hear our past episodes, to find syndication and license details, to connect with our fantastic listener community, or to contact us or support our show through Patreon, visit our website at stgcast.org or savingthegamepodcast.org. God bless, do good, and happy gaming.